What's really going on in the heads and hearts of the humans around you? I'm Mads Grummet, journalist, entrepreneur and startup investor. And I'm Sabina Reid, psychologist, speaker and media commentator. And this is Human Cogs, a podcast about the universal experiences that really matter and the candid conversations we need to have to share them. If you like Human Cogs, we'd love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. That way we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do human well. It was Seneca who said, it's not because things are difficult that we dare not venture, but perhaps in reality it is through our hardships that we actually learn the most. In this episode, we have the privilege of hearing the story of Di Draganovich, who shares her own story as the parent of four children, including Liliana, who died in infancy, and Bella, who's now age 17, who was born with Down syndrome. And yet this isn't just the story of parenting a child with special needs. It's also about the lessons that our children teach us. Di's honesty, integrity and unstoppable crusade to help Bella live her very best life offer insights for all of us, including the power of advocating for others and for ourselves. Here's our chat with Di. Tell us, if I met you at a party, what would you tell me about who you are? Jeez, that's such a good question. Um, I would most likely be interested in who you are, first of all. I think that's kind of what comes to mind first. Um, And... I don't know. That's what I feel like I would do. I'd be more interested in you. So who I am is someone who is very, very interested in people and people's stories. And, um, and like, I think I'm just like super open. A friend of mine um, actually asked me why I'm so good at speaking to strangers. And I think I love talking to strangers because you don't get all of that fluff that you get when you're talking to somebody, you know, you don't get that kind of groundhog day conversation and it gets quite deep. So I would say, um, I would be I'd come across as a people person and I would come across as someone who's interested in you. But if you wanted to know about me, like I am a mum who juggles uh, single parenthood or co-parenting with a kind of full, with a big career full-time job with a lot of interests outside of those two things. And a relatively big social life, although that's um, been dampened somewhat recently. How many kids do you have? So I've got three kids. I've got a daughter with Down syndrome who's 17 and I've got two boys who are 15 and, no, 16 and 14. And I did also have a child before Isabella. So I had a little girl who was born prematurely and she didn't survive. So, you know, I birthed four kids in about five years, which was... I think it's one of those things that, you know, once you're on a roll, you just keep going. Don't have time to think about it. How old were you when you had your first daughter? I think I was 34. I think I was 35 when I had Isabella. And then I was probably 37 with Cormac and 38 with Hamish. Wow. And so your first daughter... um are you okay if we if we talk a little bit about yeah, that? Of course, so, yeah. so your first child, and um, you said you had her prematurely, and and she survived for a time after her birth. Yeah, so I had her at twenty three weeks and six days. So we were camping somewhere, and I could feel pains, but you know I'm naturally very stoic, so 
I was trying to like kind of work through those pains and assume that everything was okay. It was part of pregnancy. You know, was sitting in a lake somewhere trying to kind of cool the pains and then came back to where everybody was and said, look, I just, this is, just doesn't feel right. And so we jumped in the car to go to the hospital, which was quite far. Um, and I was lying on my partner's lap and looking at the clock and realising that the pains were happening on a, you know, three-minute basis. And I was, like, lying there going, oh, my God, these aren't pains, these are contractions. So we made it to the hospital and I was indeed in labour um, and got into the specialist care. And they put in a, um, well, they, they had the option of putting in a stitch to keep the baby from coming out, but I think it was too far gone at that stage. So they were just trying to calm the contractions. But Liliana, which is her name, ended up um, coming out two days later, I think, at about 23 weeks, six days it's an age that they don't normally keep babies alive because it's just under that 24-week mark. But she came out, like, crying and pink. And I remember the doctor specifically saying, die, we can't let her go. Like, she's too strong. Do you mind if we, ke you know, keep trying with her? And I was like, my God, of course. And so she survived for two months in intensive care. Um, she was, you know, in my mind, she was incredible, um, a beautiful tiny the weight of a tub of butter um, perfectly formed but she hadn't had time to develop her bodily functions and needs as much as she needed to so uh, there was something that happens um, when in utero where the heart develops or closes evolve or something after the 24-week mark that hadn't happened and she um, had gone in for an operation to get that closed and she passed away during the anesthetic so that was just that you know, that little bit too much. But she was in intensive care for two months. So really got to know her. Um, you know, she's a beautiful memory for me, but, you know, just a, you know, such a difficult thing to happen. And I know it happens to other people as well. And, you know, I understand that. And it's, I think we do need to talk about things because there's so much that people deal with that isn't open and, you know, we suffer by ourselves and, People need to know that these things happen and it's, you know, a normal kind of life cycle thing that sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't and it's out of our control. But we do whatever we can to, you know, um, do the best for our babies. How, how did you um, navigate uh, that very painful and emotional and beautiful experience with Liliana's life and death as a parent and a partner? Um, so I have a personality that, um, you know, if I've got bills to pay, they won't get paid. Like they're just, they're so low on my interest list. If there's a crisis or there's something that there's a human element to or there's a big problem, like I'm just all in. So I just threw myself into being the best mum of a premature baby that I could be. So I, you know, was pumping milk around the clock and delivering it and spending time in intensive care and you know I delayed my um thanks to the support of my boss my I delayed my maternity care so that I could take it once she was out but I still had the flexibility of going in and out of um, intensive care um I think it's just one of those things like you get dealt what you get dealt with and then you just do everything you can to try and make it okay I am kind of generally 
pretty okay until I'm not. And I remember um, a neighbour calling because I'd be getting up to breast to pump for pump milk, and it would be at, you know four hourly. And my neighbour from downstairs called and said, "Hey, you know, there's a lot of noise overnight. You know, like because I walk on my heels and it's noisy, and I lost my everlasting shit." And it's because I think that was a, you know, like everything's okay, but it's simmering and it just takes one thing to tip you over to lose all of that control that you've got around your environment because you're doing your best Mm. and then someone challenges you and you're like, oh, my God, you've got no idea what I'm going through. But I tend to temper that with most people until I break. Yeah. And then, yeah. And I think that's probably not uncommon. Not uncommon at all. And that phrase that you use, I'm okay until I'm not okay, when you said that, that's what I was picturing was that we're probably not okay when we're saying we're okay. We're so, we're this close from not being okay. And that's what you've just so eloquently described. What about as a, as a partner living through that experience with, with Liliana? Look, me and, um, Liliana's dad and his dad to all my kids were not together, but we're very, very different in the way that we approach things. So I'm all in and he's not. So he's a little bit more, you know, I think, I don't know, I probably won't win any male friends here, but a little bit less um, engaged, but no more emotion, no less emotionally impacted. So he just, I guess, let me do what I was doing and supported me wasn't engaged with the whole medical thing. Um, I mean, his reaction would be to get angry at people, like get angry at doctors and get angry at, because that's, I think, his release. But I think he was just um, supportive of me. And I think that that probably in that particular time brought us together because he allowed me to be me and I could allow him to be him because I was so in, in it. Having said that, when she passed away, he completely broke down in that moment and I think it's because it, it again it's like you're okay until you're not and her passing away was his moment of how did you like in the weeks days weeks months after she had passed away what was that grief experience like for you I was very focused on how incredible the hospital had been and I think I was just very engaged with them. We ended up having um, a wake for her. Her grandparents are religious, so they wanted her to be baptised. So organised that. And I just was very focused on making that a beautiful experience for her. Um, I didn't really give myself time to grieve. I think, I don't know, there's a blog post I did when she would have turned seven um, I used to, like, do blog posts randomly because, you know, I'd have a drink at night and go, right, got something to say there's nobody here so I'll just post it on the interwebs but I remember that day because I was broken that day and it would have been her seventh birthday and I think it was just the understanding that she wouldn't be seven and I think the same thing happened when she would have turned 18 because she would never turn 18 so I think everybody processes grief in a different way I find grief um I think most of us would know this. It's not linear. It's not like you're going through this process and this is how it works for everybody. It's very much a, um, you know, you don't know when it's going to come up. I've been with friends who have lost people and are completely okay and then at some point, and I think they're super stoic, and at some point I say, are you okay? And they look at me and they say, no, I'm not, and they break down. But there is nothing outside of that moment that would indicate that that's bubbling underneath them. Mm. Mm. And and not 
too long after Liliana's death, you were pregnant again. How, it's quite, quite soon after. Yes, I was pregnant within two months of her passing away. So um, Isabella, my next daughter, was born uh, a year to the day almost uh, after Liliana was born. Um, not planned. I mean, Liliana wasn't planned either. Um, it just happened and then I had Isabella. Uh, Liliana's birthday was the 28th of Jan. Isabella's was the 27th of Jan. And ironically, her dad's is the 26th of Jan. So it was like a, you know, I found that interesting. But, yeah, I had her a year to the day later, almost. What was your, that's, yeah, super, um, super quickly after losing Liliana. And what was your pregnancy like with Bella? Yeah, no, it was great. It was, um, uh, it w- was I stressed and worried? Maybe, but everything was coming through okay. I generally had good pregnancies in that I um, was super careful not to drink and super careful to do the right things and, you know, see the right, you know, make sure that I was seeing the doctors. So it was okay. Um, There was a marker that came up at the 19-week scan that said that there could be, it was a marker for Down syndrome, but it's also a marker that occurs in normal pregnancies. And I remember the obstetrician saying at the time, you know, Di, there's no way, like I've, anybody that's tested for this hasn't come up um, as being, that's um, positive for Down syndrome. So we should just let it go. Um, But I remember with my partner at the time, um, we were at the hospital and that came up and I knew that he wasn't keen to have a baby with a disability, like just frankly. And so he would have wanted me to get tested. I had just birthed and lost a baby, so I didn't want to get tested. Like what would I do? It's not like, you know. Um, So we had this conversation and one of the most beautiful things he's ever done is that he um, said, why don't we toss the coin? And I said, yes, and he tossed the coin and he said, this is um, in relation to getting an um, amniocentesis. And um, he flicked the coin and he said, what do you hope it says? And I was like, heads, which is no amnio. And he said, that's all I needed to know and put his coin in his pocket without having looked at it. And that to me was a beautiful moment because it allowed me to not have to make decisions outside of what I really wanted to do. And that was not make any choices for this baby that weren't going to happen naturally. Then everything was okay, though. So, you know, every other scan was okay. There were no issues. And I do remember walking past um, a group of, there was like a group of people with Down syndrome that were out on, you know, somewhere doing an activity or something. I was in Chatswood going to a training course and I remember patting my belly, seeing a guy and a girl holding hands, like obviously in love and having a great time with Down syndrome. And I remember patting my belly and going, oh, God, I wonder if there's one of you in here. And it was just such a very weirdly intuitive moment that I never lost. So when Isabella was born, they didn't recognise Down syndrome in her because she doesn't have a lot of the markers, so she doesn't have the heart issues. Um, She didn't have, like, they have these two lines on their hands, like random things that she didn't have. So she was born and given a high score, new baby score, Um, But I knew when she came out, but I was the only one that could see. And I think because in my mind I had that picture of the two people um, and nobody knew, but the the nurse knew as well. So she kept sending doctors in and doctors kept saying, no, 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 she's fine, she's fine, she's fine. So it took a couple of days to get the um, official uh, likelihood that she could have and she needed to have some testing 
you know, Rory was very angry at his dad um, with the doctors for even contemplating this because, you know, understandably for him, he'd already lost one daughter and, you know, the daughter that he'd built up in his head over those couple of days was now also about to be taken away from him. So, um, we, I mean, we dealt with things in a different way. But for me, it was, you know, anger at the universe, like, come on, give me a break, but just also this is what I need to do, so this is what I'm going to do. And also I've never had an aversion to, you know, people with disabilities. I think we're all, you know, a little bit different in our own ways. So it's, you know, where you sit on that scale or, you know, what it might be that you can or can't do may vary, but we're all, you know, we're all part of the big ecosystem of human beings. And then you went on and have had two more children after Bella. Yeah, then I fell pregnant with... um. Cormac soon after, he was born about 18 months later and then Hamish was born about another 18 months after that. So I essentially did have four babies in five years and then I had three toddlers. I remember at one point going, I've got three kids under the age of four. This is like crazy and I'm working and I'm, you know. So someone texted me the other day and said one of the mums from school and was saying, I just never understood how you've managed to do what you do and work and you know, like it's just mind-blowing, but um, there's a lot that I don't get done as well. How have you managed? How would you answer that question? Um, I think I have failed in a lot of ways. So, um, you know, my house is falling apart and I never seem to be able to get to, you know, fixing the things that need to be fixed. Um, I tend to get a real kick out of... I mean, I enjoy my kids, so I love spending time with them. Um, I really, I've got such a curious mind, so I'm so obsessed about learning things. So, you know, like I'll spend a lot of time learning about things that I want to learn about. And I think the answer, the short answer is that I just divert my energies to what interests me most. And I completely forget things like, you know, that there's, I don't know, some things kill me, like bloody Easter hat parade days and things like that, and like kills me. I don't like. I just or I'm supposed to remember what colour they are in an athletics carnival, and all. It's like that stuff is so low level for me. So the answer is, I focus on everything that I'm interested in, and I fail at the other stuff. Don't we all? Don't we all? I, I hear you. Um, Died back to when Bella um, was born and you and you you know were given her her diagnosis. What was that like coming home from hospital and then not only coming to terms with that yourself, but then also amongst family and friends having to um, absorb and understand that? So I think my friends I know really struggled because they had been part of the process of losing Lily. And I know that when I was in hospital and there was the diagnosis, they were all calling each other and saying, well, what the hell do we do? And I was one of the first to have a baby. Um, and I know that they all spent time Googling what's the right thing to say with some, you know, to somebody that has a baby with a disability. And um, so I think that they felt for me and really tried to do the right thing. They were amazing. I remember one friend would turn, you know, just turned up at the door and had a bottle of Bailey's and said, let's drink. And that was it. So they were amazing and rallied around me. Um, I think being part of a mother's group, who and I'm still friends with that mother's group and I think in some ways Bella having a condition kept us close because there was a lot of care within that group because of Bella 
is my view. Um, they were great as well, but I like their kids were developing in ways that Bella wasn't. So that was a little bit hard. You know, I live in Bondi and there's a, you know, I'm a bogan by heart, but I live in Bondi. So, you know, I kind of feel like I've got to dress the part and look, you know, tidy and whatever. So there was a little bit of pressure to keep everything together. So that was probably hard. Um, and family, by and large, was amazing. Like um, my mum, who's passed, had, you know, one of, she, I mean, she was difficult in a lot of ways, but she has a real love for people that are the underdog. And I think for her, she couldn't see anything with Bella. She just thought she was perfect the way that she was. Um, Rory's parents were great. I think all in all, everybody was great. I do read a lot and hear a lot about people saying, you know, someone said something terrible to me. And I think that's just fair enough because not everybody is exposed. I did um, walk past, I don't know, I can't remember if it was a chemist or something, and someone in there said, oh, gosh, she's got Down syndrome. What do you think you did to create that? And But that stuff happens. So, I mean, I can see the looks on your faces going, oh, my God, how dare they? And I think that's the reaction a lot of people have, whereas for me it's like I kind of get we don't know what we know until we know. So it's I've never been particularly impacted by that. When you think about what people did and didn't say to you, what is something that could be appropriate to say to someone in, in that circumstance where they've got a new a new baby with a disability? What would be a comment that I... There's... Um, uh, there's a friend of mine, Nathan, who I haven't seen in ages, but I remember him, like I would put up pictures of Bella and they'd always be, you know, we've all got our better side and there'd be pictures, every picture of Bella was from a particular angle that I think downplayed the Down syndrome, like super cute angle and that was it. And then he rang me and said, all your pictures are from the same angle, I want to see more of her. And I was like, okay, and I felt like he knew kind of that that's what I was presenting, like a little bit more of a normal-looking kid. And um, and Bella is, in my mind, she's stunning. She's a beautiful, beautiful kid. And then he also said, Daisy, he calls me Daisy, which is my nickname, um, Bella is just another baby who needs your boob and your milk and just get on with it. And I think that that, for me, worked because it was like, yeah, okay, cool, I just need to get on with it. For other people, it's different because they may need a little bit more understanding or empathy or they may be struggling more, whereas I really quite like, I mean, I've got a Serbian background, so I'm used to kind of being told in a hardcore kind of way how things should be done, and so I don't mind direct conversations, and I really appreciated that. I think um, the girl that I mentioned, Sally, who brought over the Baileys, I think that was also great because it took away the need to have to be down or have to explain or have to, you know, cook somebody something that had turned up. It was like literally, oh, my God, let's drink this Baileys and have some fun. So I thought that was appropriate as well. But I'm talking about me, not masses because, <laughs> yeah. But you know more about you than anyone else and some of what you're sharing will be helpful to, to others as well. Um, you, you sound very supported, like there's quite a, a wraparound both family and friends for you. I've worked with a number of clients as a psychologist whose children have special needs and there's an, a repeated theme of feeling really isolated and feeling different and feeling misunderstood and being in the playground and watching 
other parents behave in ways that feel foreign and distant to their experience? So I think that there is a lot of that. I think, um, like I recall once having a mother's group drinks and we were supposed to meet somewhere else and one of the mums who I wasn't close to, but she was part of this group, um, turned up and said, oh, I didn't know you guys were here. I thought you were at this other place and there was this retarded kid there. And she had no idea that Bella had Down syndrome and everybody just went into like a bit of shock. And I walked into the toilets and just cried and went, oh, my God, like this is Bella going to be judged. And um, and then I came back out and I went home and then I wrote her a big email saying, you know, basically what a douche she was. Um, but there are moments that, um, and look, even within a disability community, like not everybody with Down syndrome is the same, not everybody with autism is the same, not everybody with whatever is the same. So even within your own cohort of peers, there's a lot of comparisons um, it is, so it is isolating if your expectations are pinned on something specific. My expectations for Bella were always, and I think I'm being as honest as I can be here, my expectations were always that I would help her get to the best that she could be and I think, quite honestly, was less um, comparing to other kids. I mean, I've got two super bright boys, amazing boys that came after her and if anything, I kind of go, well, you've been given these gifts, so use them and I will just help her develop her gifts more. Um, where I have felt isolated, I would say, is that I'm not very good at asking for help. I don't ask for help. I do things on my own. Um, I don't trust people. I don't trust um, partners to stick around. I don't trust that someone um, is genuinely wanting to help even though you know I should I should trust that so there's a lot that I do on my own that for me is the most isolating because you know I'm big and tough on the outside but when I'm home alone with responsibilities it's it does feel overwhelming and I do feel like nobody understands the other thing is that when you've got friends that are very different to you their approach is different so you know I've got a friend who's very much about you know, appreciating the moments in life and have some fun and do whatever. And I'm like, yeah, but that's my joy comes from other things. My joy comes from purpose and from so it's kind of trying to balance what people believe is good for you and what's actually really innately good for you. And I think I know what's innately good for me, but it can be lonely and it can be overwhelming and it can be, you know, depressive at times as well. You've mentioned the word stoic or stoicism a few times and, of course, one of the core tenets of that is the belief that you should sort of expect the worst and anything else will be better. Mm. How does that ring for you, that kind of thinking? Look, I think so. I think that that is the thinking. I mean, we talk about this a lot with my girlfriends, with my approach to relationships and the kind of sabotaging that I do and it's, you know, it's even, um, you know, I think we were talking earlier about, the fact that I like talking to strangers because it's such a short period of time and then they're going to go away and then they can't hurt you. And I think that that's part of it. So, um, yeah, I think that it is a kind of protective thing. But, you know, probably feeling that way builds a lot of internal strength as well. So if I mention stoicism, it's probably because it's built up on the back of wanting to protect myself from rejection or being let 
down or that sort of stuff. And protect Bella maybe as well um, from from the world a bit. I mean, in terms of your role with her as a parent and you're saying you wanted to get help her to be her best, um, that's a huge commitment um, for, for you to make. And I wonder, it's a very big ask you're making of yourself across all of the areas of your life that you're giving to with your, with your kids and your work. And I wonder who's got you, you know, who, who catches you? I haven't thought about that at all, ever. And I think that you have nailed it. So that's never a thought process that I've had, but you are 100% correct. The risk is that, you know, it's a kind of enmeshed sort of relationship and I do think about that a lot and if she's just relying on me and if I'm the one that's there for her, like what happens if something happens to me and, you know, am I kind of setting herself up to be, you know, is it a codependent kind of thing? But um I think you're right that there is a lot of focus on protecting her and a lot of energy is expended outward towards her and very little is taken for me by me. But I haven't thought about it, so it's really an astute observation, I think. What about how that dynamic extends to you parenting to other children? So it's super hard at the moment, as you guys know, Bella's um, had a very severe illness for the last year. I think throughout her earlier years, I was really good at balancing it. Like I, you know, those boys are incredible. And um, I think that they've had value from having a sister with a disability. So all in all, they've been a brilliant trio to manage. They're all completely different and it does feel like a tag team of me, 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 me. So you're always kind of like having to manage their needs. There's a lot of expenditure in just like these three different lanes. Um, I think that they were amazing because, um, you know, they learned to live and adored a sister that, um, you know, couldn't walk to the beach quickly, so they would have to walk slowly. And I think that that they developed a lot of um, really, you know, a lot of good human behaviours as a result of that. Now, having said, so I think it was okay when they were younger, a little bit hard having all those kids and, you know, none of them want to do what I want them to do, like learn music and, <laughs> you know, another language and, you know, but they're brilliant in their own way, so whatever. Um, but having said that, in the last year and a bit that Bella's been super unwell, my focus has been on Bella and I haven't given them enough time and I don't have the capacity to give them time. And I think that that's super hard because I feel guilt around that and I try and overcompensate it in ways like I will take you on a holiday, but I have no energy for that holiday and they have no interest in the holiday that I've selected. And so it all kind of blows up as a nobody's happy because I'm cranky. They're just wanting to do something else. You know, Bella's in her own world. And so everything kind of seems to be on the edge of falling apart at the moment. Um, I, I, my youngest son was saying, I was asking him um, if I'm a little bit too loose as a parent and he's like, mum, you are so much less loose than most Bondi parents because I'm still quite, my expectations are high, which is amazing <laughs> if I've got enough time to balance that with a lot of love and attention and that has um, just hasn't been as available. So mm. I'm kind of, you know, Bella's a bit better now, so working on that, but I 
I would think some damage has been done to that, to um, the dynamics of that relationship. That is a relationship between you and your sons or their sibling relationships? What about sibling dynamics? To me and them, and I think there's an element of frustration for them with Bella that they have never had because, you know, there's something. I mean, I don't want to kind of talk on their behalf. I don't even know if they'd agree with me. But, you know, she was so much joy, so funny, loving, and, and all of that went as part of this thing that she's got. So they weren't getting much from her. I was asking a lot of them and there's not much that they're getting. Now, the other thing with them is that they're super, and I think, you know, benefit of having a sibling with a disability is that, you know, you end up being quite self-sufficient and, you know, you're kind of sorting out your own shit all the time, so that's good. So they're very, very capable. But it's too much of an expectation on kids, I think, to be that reliance on your own self-sufficiency mm. like you know we all need a bit of a catch somewhere so mm. i don't know i'd say that um it's been a little bit of a work in progress yeah. this year and but yeah i mean i appreciate and love all of them equally they always ask me who my favorite child is and i keep saying like hand on heart i don't have a favorite child i love them all but my god they are different like they yeah. are literally could not be more different I've, uh, yeah, well, I've got four kids, as you know, and when they say, who's your favourite, I am, I am. I go, none of you. No, none of you. <laughs> there, are, there are no you. I equally, I have equal disdain for, disdain for all of you. Um, I was just going to reflect on something you talked about there just with um, the, the journey of your sons uh, and then your focus on Bella through and, and we can get to talking about um, the last couple of years and what you've been through and what she's been through. Um, but I'm from a family of six children, my family of origin, and I have two siblings with very severe disabilities, both of whom I'm, I'm a, a co-guardian for. And one thing I've reflected on having been a sibling in a family with um, people with disability, and, and again, I'm not going to speak for humanity, uh, but in my experience, that the disability itself becomes very big and a magnet in the family and it kind of distorts, uh, you know, perhaps the usual pattern of things. What I have observed and certainly would be true in my family is that those who are not unwell or don't have this disability, then they relativise down on the Maslow's hierarchy, if you like, that the person who's disabled will always, their needs will be met first, their story is bigger and more powerful and, and traumatic. And so actually what happens is then you nothing is, is amounts to much at all in your own life or experience or because relative to their suffering or their whatever they're going through, then yours becomes diminished. So there's this odd... Uh, dysfunctional distortion of the hierarchy of the hierarchy of needs um in in that family and i and i'm not sure what i'm sure bena you would have some views but i don't know how you offset that that's just the nature of something if a very big thing happens to someone in a family it then blows out the needs all anchor over toward that like moths to flame yeah and i think what you're talking about there is how do we find ways to validate everyone's needs and everyone's joys and everyone's suffering because and see them we, as equal well almost, not equal rather than they're not equal but they're all valid and we don't need a label to be valid to be validated no but but the lived experience though is that the other siblings, you know, sort of quietened down because nothing in their life is ever going to be as big or dramatic or tra traumatic as that which occurred for the siblings who are that's disabled. The, or, that's the know. perception, but what I'm hearing you say is that you needed more of your experiences validated. 
your your siblings who didn't have special needs needed their experiences validated or to feel I'm having a you know I'm having a shit day or this thing happened that's which, validating yes yeah. you are having a shit day with yeah. Rather than anyway, it's more just a, an observation as to yeah that pattern of things inside of a family uh, dynamic and with siblings. Oh look, I think it's um and it's you know we talk about siblings with disabilities, but I've got um a brother who is four and a half years younger than me, and we had a very difficult relationship. And I was the oldest sibling and just felt like he always got away with everything, and I was responsible for everything. So there is these dynamics I think in sibling relationships that exist outside of having a disability, it's just easy to pin it on something. So with my brother, it's like he was the youngest, he's spoiled, he's, you know, has no responsibility, I'm responsible for everything, I get in trouble for everything, and he doesn't have a disability, but, you know, and for him, he'd be like, God, she's so bossy and she, you know, she's such a goody two-shoes. And so I think it's easy to, and, you know, even the way that I look at my two boys, I go, why can't you be more empathetic about something or why are you not listening to me in that way? Like it's just hmm. it's very easy to find that something that, um, you know, makes life a little bit less perfect than what you'd like it to of be. Of course. Yeah. And and when we talk about a disability and, and specifically for Bella Down syndrome, people, our listeners, many will have an idea, a preconceived idea of what that looks like and how that manifests both physically, mentally, emotionally, and across the lifespan, how that's going to play out. Help us understand what that journey has been like for you, knowing that particularly there's been a, a fork, well, a change in the trajectory you thought you were on as well. So um, I can't talk for everybody, and I am very um, like I'm pro-choice and very like people make their choices, and you know relationships are imperfect, sibling-parent relationships are imperfect, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, for whatever reasons. However, you asked that question, and I don't know if you noticed, but I couldn't help smiling because thinking about Bella is that child brings me so much joy. Like I love her so much that there are almost no words for it. Now, I think a part of that could be because she needs me. So where others I'm afraid of, you know, you know, them leaving me or, I, or that's my assumption that that's what they're going to do. With Bella, I know that she needs me. Now, aside from that, she is, you know, when she's well, she is so funny. She is so sassy. She so beats to her own drum. In my view, she's absolutely beautiful. I, If I could take away the Down syndrome, I would take it away in a nanosecond. However, I also know if I did that, that what I might have is another is a kid with something else, like a mental health issue or, a, you know, um, could get hit by a bus, whatever it might be. So I'm very good, I think, at just looking at her as Bella and, um, knowing that I have to work th through this stupid disability that I wish she didn't have, but she's still Bella to me and I adore her. So what's it like? Um, it's very hard from a resource perspective because you need to invest a lot of time and are told that you need to invest a lot of time in things like early interventions and, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, there is, you do have to navigate um, a lot of these extra things like, you know, at the moment for a lot of families, it's NDIS, which is a complete pain in the ass. Um, schooling, wanting the best for them, always kind of wondering whether you're making the right choices. Um, 
all of that and then like thinking about what happens to me what happens to her when I'm gone like who's going to look after her who's going to love her like the way that I love her like that's all so there's all this extra 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 resource extra care extra time extra so there's a lot that is taken from you but there is so much that she gives I was dating somebody for a while and he was in Melbourne and he would come up and she would say to him like he would come to the door like flying up from Melbourne and he'd open the door and she'd be like um oh, let's not give him his real name let's call him I don't Peter um Peter you love me and he'd be like no Bella you're supposed to say Peter I love you and she's like but you love me and it's like so endearing and I remember him saying that he thought it would be great with me and assumed that it would be okay with the kids had no idea what it would be like with Bella and then fell in love with her within a week and she fell in love with him like so she was right uh, he did love her Oh, he loved, like, you know, I don't know if he would say that now, but he absolutely loved her. Like, or he connected with her because he also could see that sassiness and that, um, and she was the pain. But there's something in being a pain that is a little bit cheeky but innocent and that you can't help but love. Like, I don't know, she's just, she's, you know, she's, you know, they say kids with Down syndrome are lovely and they're all like love and light and like they haven't met Bella because she's <laughs> a literal middle finger to anybody that she doesn't like. Like she's like, she chooses not to talk. She's a selective mute. If she thinks that you're not into her, she just won't talk to you. If she loves you, then you are literally the most important person in the world in that moment. So, yeah, I mean, I adore her with my whole heart. My biggest frustration with her is that she doesn't um, uh, present herself in ways that she does to me. So if I'm like, you know, walking down the street and someone says hi and she ignores them, like I'm like, oh, my God, that's so embarrassing. Why can't you just say hello and be nice? But, you know, she just does beat to her own drum. But have you not had that experience with your sons at, a t- at once or twice where they don't, they don't respond in a way you wish they did? That doesn't sound specific to to a disability as a parent. Yes, but I do have to say that they are quite remarkable. Like I remember taking um, Bella in to see a psychologist in her early years and the boys were there and I was like, oh, she's just not behaving. Oh, that's the other thing. Like you can't make this, the stubbornness is like out of this world. Like the amount of patience required is like, I don't know, you need a bloody doctorate in patience (laughs) to be able to deal with it. But the psychologist said, die. I think what you're doing is comparing her to your boys because they are remarkable. And I think that they really, really were uh, remarkable. So I haven't really had that experience with them. I'm also a bit hardcore, so I'm a little bit, like I'm very loving as a parent but also very tough, so they respond to that, whereas she just Mm. won't. Mm -hmm. Mm. So I've got to be more patient. So if anything, they'd be like, why are you so nice to Bella but, you know, you're so hard on us. You shared a video with us that we will share with our with our listeners, and uh, it it just spoke volumes. It was a series of well, a history of of Bella's um, growing up with her everything you've described: her sassiness, her humour, her playfulness, her um, vigour for life and for other other humans, and her curiosity. And it was her energy was. Off the charts, wasn't it, Mads? Yeah, like we were absolutely. both blown away by you know she was she's captivating. She is captivating, 
And then towards the end of the video, you share that in the last 12, 18 months, she's regressed. Help us understand what's happened and what's it been like for you? Yeah, so it's a horror. It's actually an absolute horror. So it didn't, so she has what has, what is now bubbling up in the medical community um, with a name, which is Down syndrome regressive disorder. Initially called Down syndrome Dis disintegrative disorder, but I think they changed it because um, it's reversible. A very unknown condition. So um, if anybody has heard of autoimmune encephalitis or encephalitis, it's pretty much that, which is basically where your autoimmune system attacks your brain. So for some people, um, it happens overnight and for others it can bubble over a little while. Um, so I have, I know of families where their kids have, you know, one Uno the night before and then woken up the next day and don't speak and don't even remember how to play Uno. Um, with Bella, what I noticed was that she just started to slow down. So probably around, so her sleeping was always problematic, but sometime around the middle of last year, I was watching her at the um, pedestrian crossing, like I was trying to get her to walk to her dad's on her own and I was behind her and she just stood at that pedestrian crossing for a long time and wasn't acting as far, wasn't responding to needing to move as quickly as she should. So I decided in that moment that I would take a career break from work and so I could spend some more time with her and some more time with the boys and also, you know, spend some time just like working out whatever my creative interests were. So um, I did that, but before I kicked off the career leave, she just stopped sleeping and then her look, she would look at me sometimes and she looked like she was psychotic. She looked like she was possessed. She then started like overnight would be rocking in bed and talking to herself and looking out the mirror. And so it's this gradual thing post-COVID that I started to assume was either she's got mental health issues or She's been impacted by this COVID situation and I'll be able to take this time off work and help her. Anyway, she's got progressively worse and an example would be that she just stopped sleeping altogether so she could go days without sleeping. I can't sleep if she's not sleeping, so hugely detrimental for me as well. Um, and then I started down the path of trying to investigate what was going on and went through everything. Like I spent hours scouring the depths of the internet to try and find out things, was organising blood tests, seeing specialists, like laying up all these appointments. And then one night in the middle of the night, I came across this Down syndrome aggressive disorder, which is a um, paper that was written by, there's a Dr. John Santoro in LA, a neuroimmunologist and a bunch of other people. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, my God, this describes Bella to a T. And so I sent it to her dad and stepmom and said, this is Bella. And at that point they were like, you yeah, know, she's just not listening and she's, you know, needs to basically pick up the socks. But I knew something else was wrong. And they looked at it and went, oh, my God, that is Bella. Can't believe you found that. Now, that was the start of a, like, unbelievable journey that I've had this year because nobody in Australia was aware that this is a legitimate condition and it's always been assumed for generations, which breaks my absolute heart, that these kids are displaying conditions like early onset dementia, late onset autism, that they're schizophrenic, that this is Down syndrome and, you know, they get depressed. So my baseline is all of her peers, which are off having an amazing time and going to concerts and catching buses on their own. 
while Bella's regressing. And I was like, no, it's not Down syndrome. Like we have a sick kid. If I came in and presented one of my boys to any of you, you would have 10 doctors around them. But because she's got Down syndrome or she's got a disability, it's like, oh, no. Anyway, um, that ended up um, being this big fight for the last six months to get her treatment. And as far as I'm aware, she's the first person in New South Wales with Down syndrome to be treated, um, which is phenomenal. And I guess my whole everything about me at the moment is on making sure that there's an awareness that something can be done that the medical community is aware that what they're assuming this is it isn't and that families are aware that they can fight for treatment for their kids what, what is the treatment die so the first line there's a couple of things that happen um catatonia is one of the symptoms of autoimmune encephalitis or in this symptom in this um you know, group of symptoms and catatonia, most people will assume it's like seeing somebody who just freezes and gets locked up, but there can be a um, excited catatonia where you're kind of really manic and, you know, so um, one treatment is to deal with the one thing that you need to do is deal with the catatonia. So I um, ended up getting her prescription for Ativan. Ativan is a benzo and, but nobody wants to prescribe it because, you know, they don't, because, you know, sedating and whatever it doesn't work that way in these kids so i ended up forcing through getting her that to help treat the catatonia and then catatonia is a symptom like sleeping is not sleeping is a symptom so ivig so um ivig is where they replace intravenously your antibodies or your autoimmune system with the blood donations of a thousand people extremely difficult to get very expensive to get my god if i've got one message in this podcast it's go out and donate blood like your blood is just blood is so valuable for so many diseases including this so she has ivig ivig is expensive um the blood bank um will allow it for certain conditions so the public hospitals don't have to be charged for it but this isn't recognized as a condition so it was an enormous enormous fight um but i knew um what i was lucky with is two things one is that i was on the internet and i found facebook groups of families that had been going through this overseas i also found john santoro the author of those papers and i sent him emails and he's a neurologist in the us and he would respond to all my questions. And I also found a Dr. Kathy Franklin, who is um, a psychiatrist in Queensland, who's doing research on this. So between all of that, I could push and push and push. Um, I also had a pediatric, um, a pediatrician who believed me and was medically curious as opposed to just dismissing. So he spent three hours with me taking notes and said at the end of it, Di, you need to temper your expectations but let's try and see if it is this that you think it is. So that was the start. And then um, getting a referral for a paediatric neurologist who was familiar with autoimmune disorders was the other kind of nugget that I ended up landing with. Huge fight. The other thing that I would say is Bella is 17. The children's hospitals uh, only deal with kids up until the age of 16. So Bella is not a typical 17 year old she needs me as her voice she is not able to source information or medical support whatever herself she has been dealt with the pediatric system and pediatricians her whole life 
and at this critical point she was cancelled off children's hospital stuff and was expected to pivot to adult care. Adult care knows nothing about her. They know nothing about this. I'd already been on this journey for six months, eight months, nine months. So I ended up writing a letter to the health minister and said, this just isn't on. They, to their credit, wrote to the hospital. Hospital then got in, in touch with me. And as a result of all of that, Bella is now being treated. The Ativan she's got to help with the catatonia, being treated with IVIG, which is a monthly cycle of intravenous replacement of those antibodies and will likely have to end up something like um, ECT, which is electroconvulsive therapy. So um, what happens to a lot of these kids is that they are completely misdiagnosed and mismedicated. So they'll be put on antipsychotics when it's not a psychotic like the psychiatric symptoms are symptoms, they're not a cause, and the actual causes aren't being dealt with and they're not being managed and, yeah. How's Bella doing now? So you're six months or so into the treatment? Yeah, no, so she's four, she just had her fourth treatment the other day. Um, she's doing great. So I think the doctors after the first one and, you know, with tears on the phone and telling them that they're forcing me to choose between my children, et cetera, she got the first round um, approved and done and then they were shocked at the improvement in her because they didn't, they just thought I was a crazy mum and just get her off our back and, you know, have they're accountable to the minister so we've just got to kind of do it and then we're surprised and then they approved the next round and she's just been getting better and better and better. It's a very slow process. So with um, something wherever there's a brain injury, it's, again, not a linear improvement. Like you kind of, there's different parts of the brain that are thawing out and recovering and so you get a re-emergence of some symptoms and then they go. It's like, um, I call it like rolling back up the hill that you've rolled down on. Like mm. it's it's super, super interesting. I'm fascinated by it. But um, she is getting better. There are some amazing things that have completely changed my life. So she's gone from not sleeping to sleeping. Unbelievable. She has gone from being manic to not being manic. She's gone from being fully compliant, which is really that kind of zoned out state, to being stubborn again, which is not wasn't on my top list, top of the list of things I wanted to come back, but that's there. Um, she's engaging in schoolwork. Her school has been amazing as well because a lot of kids get kicked out of school because they can't deal with them. Her school has been phenomenal. Um, and she's getting better and better. So she is... I don't know, they always ask you for a percentage of what she's like against baseline and um, I describe it as we got to the edge of the cliff, we pulled back from the edge of the cliff and now we're back on the way to the freeway but we're doing that on, a, on gravel roads. So a little bit bumpy but we are heading back to the ballad that you saw in the beginning of that video. Well, it's awesome that she's got you commandeering the four-wheel drive across the gravel um, to have you with her <laughs> through this journey, which sounds incredibly hard, uh, but what a lucky lucky human she is to have you, you know, with her on the journey. Di, what do you hope most for Bella? Um, I just want her to have a good life doing things that she enjoys doing. We've, she's very lucky. I mean, I'm Serbian by background. I've seen videos of kids that have been institutionalised in Serbia and other, like, Eastern European countries born with disabilities. So that she hasn't had to live through that. So she has had the opportunity to grow as an independent person, having her own personality and learning things. 
So my, you know, she's always wanted to cook. She loves cooking. She has always wanted to be a chef. Um, my hope for her is that she gets to work in an environment that she enjoys um, and that she is able to have a partner if she's interested in having a partner where they have a great life together. Um, I hope that she is just happy. I mean, it's the thing that you hope for all your kids, right? doesn't matter what they're good at or what they're not good at. You just want them to be good human beings that are, that have opportunity. So that's really my hope for her that, and that she's just able to do things herself, that she's not reliant on, um, you know, that she is able to live semi-independently. I don't want her institutionalized as an example. Mm. Um, yeah. I just want her to have a good life where she gets to enjoy um, the unique attributes that she has as part of that life. Mm. You're a fierce parent. I think a lot, again, a lot of our listeners will relate. Our fierceness just manifests in different ways. And a lot of what you just described is pretty universal, isn't it? Wanting our kids to carve out a life that feels good to them. I think one thing someone said to me the other day, you know, she's so lucky to have you and, you know, other parents that, may not have your capacity, you know, your, I don't know, abilities, whatever, your dog dog mindedness. The thing is that um, there are lots of intelligent parents that have gone through this that haven't been able to get any progress because yeah. they're dealing with a medical system that isn't set up to support um, adults, yeah. diverse adults. Yeah. And um, it's my heart breaks where there's additional layers in that, like having English as a second language yeah. or um, yeah. not having the mental capacity or whatever. But the fact is that this can happen to any one of us, mm. any one of our kids. This isn't. This doesn't just happen in Down syndrome. It happens mm. like with neurotypical kids as well. But you're up against the fight of a medical system. And I've got to say that having access to other parents globally that could give me information was critical in being um, able to do what I've been able to do because I was so informed yeah. thanks to them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but education. You're, you're is so resourceful and, and you're, you're not going to stop. And, uh, yeah, I hear what you're saying. And NDIS particularly is a world unto itself. And as you say, many people just cannot find ways to navigate it. Mm. Yeah. For, it's, for, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is yeah. Ha that's, ha a, that's a whole other podcast. Yeah, that's another I, podcast. One of my sibs has an NDIS package and it is yeah. a lot of tangle. Um, Di, there's something you recently put out um, about your mum uh, and, and I read it uh, in preparation for our chat today and, uh, and it actually rings so true for you and what you've shared with us today. You wrote about her but I see so much of you in, in this. She had strength, the deepest care for those most vulnerable, the highest integrity and honesty and a strong compass for what matters most in the world. She was a fireball, a nonconformist, a fighter, and all of that burns in me too. And it doesn't it absolutely what? does. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So yeah, yeah. Keep keep doing you. You're you're a legend. Yeah, thank you. I wrote that when um she passed, and I think um yeah, she's. I mean, she was tough cookie, but. I don't know, I was saying to my brother, I feel like she was the first feminist that I knew and she was like, oh, she's not a feminist. And I was like, complete feminist, like not in the way that we kind of label it now, but she just didn't take shit from anybody, mm. didn't care. And, yeah, like I'm, I'm pleased to have had to have her as part of me. Mm. 
Di, we close the end of every conversation we have with all our guests with the same question and we often acknowledge how complicated life is. We don't need to do that with you. We ask then, who do you think is doing human well? Um, so I should have been prepared for this question because I've listened to your podcast and I completely forgot that. Um, I am going to say a few people. So I am going to say... Um, somebody like that first paediatrician that I saw because ego did not fall into that conversation. Curiosity and helping and listening and, like, I think of him because he is making a difference by being a good human, you know. I'm going to say people like you two because the ability to, to bring other people's stories to an audience that needs to hear those stories and needs to feel part of um, this big kind of human thing that we are with all our different experiences and ways of being. And, I mean, I've listened to so many of your podcasts and they really touch me. Like I rarely have been able to stop listening to one when I've listened and they give me such different perspectives on different people's experiences. I think you guys are doing humans, um, humaning well just by bringing to light the many colours of being human and allowing people to be a part of that. Now, I literally did not think about that at all, except for when you asked, and I'm looking at you both going, yeah, you guys, and also that paediatrician who, yeah, who listened, and his name's Ming Chow, actually. I love him, and he made a big difference. So, um, And his receptionist who snuck me in to see him on his day off. <laughs> Okay. She's doing human well to Dr. Chow and his receptionist. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for chatting to us and sharing your beautiful and big story. And, yeah, absolutely, we the reason we want to keep doing this and, and having these chats is to bring stories like yours into the light so that we can learn um, learn from those. And I'm sure people will learn so much from hearing um, the way you conduct yourself um, and, and learning more about beautiful Bella. Yay. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I was just like thoroughly enjoyed chatting. Yes, thank so you. did we so, Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Human Cogs. We hope that this conversation has led you to think a little bit differently about yourself and those around you. And thank you for all the amazing feedback that we get about these conversations. If you do like Human Cogs and what we're doing, we would love you to hit subscribe and please leave us a star rating. What that means is we can keep bringing you more stories from Extraordinary Ordinaries to help us all do do human human well. well.